All right. Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast. The podcast where scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and cycling coach. And then there's me. Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Toon Van Erp, performance scientist with Ineos Grenadiers. And we're talking about how world tour riders actually train. Well, that's the overarching theme, and we do get into the details of this, but we're breaking this topic into two episodes. The first one is on training load measures, and the second, it's further into the details of how world tour riders actually train. In part one, Jason, Cyrus, and Toon take aim at training load in training and racing, and one of the measures discussed is TSS, you know, the training stress score from training peaks. Toon is better placed than probably anyone in performance cycling to talk about TSS. He spent a lot of time looking at TSS to understand its limitations in varying situations and across different intensities. And like he says about sports science in general, not just TSS, working with any measure is about choosing something to work with, knowing its limitations and working with them as best as possible to keep moving forward. I want to start off here by saying that if you've listened to the show long enough, you'll know we spend a lot of time examining assumptions around cycling performance that we've taken it upon ourselves to find and relay the truth from as close to the source as possible. This way, we know that we're bringing the best in cycling performance knowledge to the greater cycling community because with better knowledge comes a better sport. Sometimes, though, this message gets lost and it might seem like we're critical just for the sake of it. Or we compare existing solutions with ideal perfect ones, which are often unrealistic. But we are well aware of the challenges in transforming scientific findings into real-world performance. And we are well aware of the nirvana fallacy. The idea that when considering alternatives to what is already being done, it's important to compare real-world alternatives, not an imagined perfect solution that doesn't exist. Toon was a bit of a kick in the pants in this regard. He is the antithesis of this. He is an experienced researcher with a very pragmatic stance on using what is available by understanding the limitations and communicating them. So instead of putting time into developing a new training load measure, which is another challenge altogether, he's put a lot of time into understanding the relationship between what's out there and real-world performance. And he's done this at the top of the sport. He understands that even at the top level of cycling, there are many challenges to transferring best practices into real-world solutions and performance. In this episode, we come across a lot of moments where, as Voltaire wrote in 1772, which translates to better is the enemy of the good, but it's often translated as perfect is the enemy of the good. So I wanted to send you off into this episode with this in mind. Because even if things aren't a perfect solution, if the alternative is having or doing nothing, then the hope is we are still learning and improving cycling and cycling performance by using an imperfect solution. So a little bit of background on how you came across the podcast or how we know you is after we finished our interview with Dejo. So you guys call him Dio. Dio. Yeah. So, so I've been mispronouncing his name the whole time. <laughs> yeah, but it's difficult. I think for uh, not Dutch guys. <laughs> I guess I probably could have figured it out. But I asked him, I was like, who would you like to see on the podcast? And or do you know anyone that would like to come on the podcast? And I knew his answer pretty much. I didn't even have to really ask him. I just I knew I knew who he was going to say. I knew he was going to say you should have Toon come on. I knew he was going to say it. But it was, when he said that, I was pretty excited about it. Why is Jason excited? Well, let's do a roundup of Toon's history in cycling performance. We're talking about a sports scientist with 15 published articles on professional cycling from 2010 to 2021. 
nine years of experience with a World Tour cycling team, Team DSM, and its previous incarnations. And let's talk about the long road to getting a place in sports science at the World Tour level. We have the degrees, Bachelor of Science in Physiotherapy, Master of Science in Human Movement Science, and a PhD. But here's where it gets really interesting. It started with unpaid internships, 12 months of two days a week with the Dutch Olympic Committee, and then 12 months for free with Skill Shimano Cycling Team, landing a full-time job at Team Argos Shimano at the end of that period. This turned into nine years as an embedded scientist within the same team, before shifting to a postdoctoral research position for two years, before his current position at INEOS comes up. And here's where some inside information about how difficult and competitive applying for this type of position was. Advertised in early 2021, nearly 100 candidates applied for the position. This was whittled down to 60 candidates after their initial criteria, which was a PhD and five years of experience working in the field. And this was followed by the review of an administrative panel, which was then followed by a review of a technical professional panel. In the end, Toon was successful, and honestly, you can see why. And going from having to prove the added value of a sports scientist in elite sport and working for free to 10 years later, where the barrier of entry is so high, which I think is a good thing for the sport. So after all of that, you can understand why Jason was... So happy to have this conversation now. So anyways, the purpose of this episode is we're going to try to formulate a better picture of how professional cyclists, particularly those at the world tour level, we want to look and see how they actually train and race. And in terms of people to talk to, let's see, you're probably high up there in that tier in terms of researchers uh, that have an idea of how this level of cyclists is actually performing in races and uh, how they are training. First off, I'll ask you the question, why would we do research on pro cyclists like this? Why? Some of the data I published is known by the World Tour teams, but they are the only guys who know it. So I think it's important to publish for the coaches and the riders below that. But that's more in general, like to share the knowledge. And uh, I think it will bring us further, right? I mean, I did that paper one year ago about fatigue resistance. And now that's really good to see. But now one year later, I, I it comes back in podcasts and like people talk about it and it, and it makes an extra step in the, how we can use the data. When I started in 2011, like the whole power data thing was pretty new. We have to get invo- yeah, involved in, in these kind of things. And now I know with fatigue resistance is pretty hot topic. So I know other people are working on that and, I only looked at kilojoules, but probably uh, has some intensities way more important than the endurance. So we can like improve cycling. And yeah, I have a lot of reasons why we should, why, why we should look at it. Um, when I start working on, like, for example, all those training load measures, I'm now figuring out they are all not really meant for cycling. So we should like look into mm-hmm. that as well to see if we can improve and, um, think when, when we start sharing data and IDs, other, other people will, will use that data and IDs to, to make other uh, IDs which are better or more advanced. So I think that's the reason, just to get the whole uh, cycling community more uh, yeah, on a higher yeah, level. Yeah, for sure. I particularly like having that data out there for... Um, uh, you know, I'm working with a guy that's aspiring to be a pro. You can put that paper in front of him and say, look, these are at least targets of where you should be expecting to train and in order to hit the level of performance that you want to be at. It's just nice to have yeah. that. Yeah. On training is not so much out there, but I think in general, amateurs or amateurs or like upcoming cyclists, they, they feel they always have to train hard. Mm-hmm. Or at least, you know, when you see your mind paper, for example, that they do uh, 60% in the in the in zone one or what I call mm-hmm. zone one. Um, so it's also for those coaches working in a little bit lower level. You can show like, here's data from professionals. They, they are not always going full gas. Mm-hmm. And they, they are taking recovery days. And they, you know, so it can help you guys to, or these guys to, 
to convince their rider that it is okay to to train easy or to take recovery days because in the old sometimes you feel in the old cycling they they never took recovery days and they do crazy amount of distances yep. and well it's not really the case anymore yeah. so one of the things that we should kind of make apparent to the listeners is and one of the reasons why it's taken so long for a lot of these papers that come out i think the earliest papers might have been early 2000s, late 90s that were kind of looking at this level of riders. I mean, um, Lucia, his, Lucia, his name yeah. comes to mind with looking at these types of this cohort. And um, so it's actually really difficult to do any kind of science on this cohort. So a lot of times the data or the research that comes out of it is something like either a retrospective study where you just kind of look at the data that's already there, which is what most of your research is, if I'm not mistaken. There's a lot a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today is just retrospective. Oh. Like, you had the data, I'm going to go and look back at it. Um, and, or you have studies that are very, very non-invasive, prospective studies, kind of like some of the stuff that Dejo did during his PhD. Or you have to go down a few categories. The more invasive it is, the farther down the category in terms of rider that you have to go. And a little bit of a discussion around this is that what a professional cyclist is, is defined. Like they have a certain amount of training that they do. They have a certain amount of races that they have to get to, and they have a certain amount of, you know, and they have to actually obviously make an income off of it. But in the terms of almost like Schrodinger's cat, when you make the observation, you potentially change what you're observing and that's what we have to be very aware of when it comes to researching professional cyclists because if you want to do a say a muscle biopsy research study on a world tour cyclist and how things are looking you know on their taper into the tour de france you are now changing that definition of the professional cyclist because now you're really messing thing with them so these are things that we will probably never get to know and, and maybe unless we have find some case study or something like that like one-offs with people and so this is where the retrospective studies come in where you have this um, i think your data set is over four years with uh sunweb if i'm not mistaken in dsm yeah my PhD, I took four years, and then uh, after I did, I added another four yeah, years or something yeah. like that. So it got more because I was working in a team collecting data. But for my PhD, I decided, okay, I use this data. Yeah, so. we'll have a conversation with the difference between retrospective and prospective studies for the listeners because I think a number of the people that would be listening to this podcast are probably keen to read papers, and they'll probably, hopefully go and look up your research and have a look at it. And I think if you're outside of the sports science field, you might look at the findings for a prospective study and a retrospective study and see that they are equal, but there's limiters to, to each one of those uh, types of studies and they will tell you potentially different things. I think we'll get into the specifics of that when we get into the individual research papers, but you know, some of the caveats when you're looking up retrospective studies because that's all you can really do there's going to be limiters like you probably weren't able to set up testing sessions and things like that so you have to define zones retrospectively right so and then you're like, what method are you going to you can't use necessarily a, a weekly threshold test to define zones in that situation like a lot of your stuff is the best 20 minute power for the season and that would be how you determine ftp let FTP, let alone versus critical power, right? So this is true through all research. As soon as you start going into retrospective analysis, it really kind of limits what you can look at. And then yeah, yeah. you have to be careful of how how certain you are about the results, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Prospective would, would have been better. I'm jumping in here to further explain the differences between retrospective and prospective studies, as it really does help us non-sports scientists to know what we can use from each type. So to back right up here, 
Here's a simple explanation of the two. When looking at options for either testing hypotheses or asking specific questions, researchers choose between prospective and retrospective studies. This choice is often dictated by a few main factors, things like budget and the availability of athletes. In the case of Toon's research... It's almost impossible to do with these like, like professional athletes yeah, because yeah. you can divide them in two groups and then say, okay, group A, you're going to do a certain training and group B, uh, you do control training. As Toon said, in his case, a prospective study would have involved designing an intervention for professional cyclists, asking them, for example, to commit to the researchers' training prescriptions for a set period of time. So you can see why there's an issue with that. So re- retrospective is, yeah, it's, I think it's the only way, especially with these big data sets, to, to do it. In my case, it would have been slightly better if, if I would have had a performance that are like a step test in a lab to define the zones. Um, but still, I think it will give a really good idea about the training and the racing and the demands. Although the zones will maybe be slightly a little bit off. In, in this case, it's the only way to, to get these kind of large data sets and to do this kind of uh, research. I will say that retrospective studies have the advantage of being quicker to turn around. There's no designing studies, recruiting participants, collecting baseline data before the research subjects undergo a specific intervention. This might be why we're seeing a lot of these of late. They are easier to churn out and they certainly have their place next to prospective studies. But in my opinion, it's the prospective studies we really need to move performance science forward. Yeah, it gets into what I have down here is there is one side of it is you want to realize the limitations of the research. But on the other side, it's not a good idea to get into what we would we call the nirvana fallacy. I hear the nirvana fallacy about exercise physiology and sports science research a lot from usually people outside the field that are like engineers or something like that, where they're used to very stringent uh, first principles and things like that. Uh, And you're just not going to get that from our field. So basically it's some kind of, I've I've said this before with, with just analyzing athlete data on here is some kind of dim light on the subject where you at least know the limitations of what, what the analysis is, is better than nothing, right? This is the argument I get in with, or a debate that I get in with uh, Paolo Manespa and, um, you know, using a training load model and training peaks versus not using it at all. I'm like, well, I have yeah. a pretty good idea what the limitations of the model are. I've used it for like a decade now. But I think I think a big problem is that we who does a who did a PhD who's writing papers we understand the limitations. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people that work in the field don't understand mm-hmm. the limitations. And I think that there is where it goes wrong. They will use like I did a presentation a month ago about training load in a team and like ah not only but everybody for example is using TSS. And they don't even mm-hmm. know the limitations. And I think that that, mm-hmm. that would be Yeah, we'll definitely talk about those. <laughs> we'll definitely talk about the limit. Yeah. Ah, there, there are a lot, lot of limitations in TSS. Uh, <laughs> I, with that presentation, I just I was trying some things and like it's a, how do they call it in English? Like a, a dumpster fire? Ah, <laughs> oh, no, you, okay, you open a can, a can of worms. Of, you you or, open a can or of worms. Go, you go down a yeah, rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, it's, but still, it's better than not using yeah, any load. Yeah, exactly, so, exactly. Yeah. In the, I'm kind of in the middle with TSS. And the next topic here I want to discuss is training load. But just to kind of prelude that, the, um, in terms of TSS, on one side, you know, you might have someone like Siler, Steven Siler, who's like, I remember him saying a tweet, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone that uses TSS doesn't understand it or something like that. He just, he's, he really smashed it. The actual tweet from Dr. Stephen Seiler is this, quote, With apologies, the TSS just makes me laugh as a physiologist, cry as a coach for athletes who somehow believe that this made-up metric is something they should follow religiously, and yawn as an athlete who knows better and does not give the number two seconds worth of attention. 
And Paolo is, I think, the same. He's also against uh, normalized power and TSS. And a little further down on the same thread as the last tweet is Paolo Menespa. Quote, every single time I review a paper using TSS, I ask to cite a validation study. Nothing. Also, consider TSS users normalized power, equally never validated. And by the way, I'm going to start using Scylla 2020 as a reference. I understand where they come from because it's just a made-up made up formula <laughs> with a made-up made number that says, oh, if I do one hour on FTP, I have 100 points. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I understand where they come from, but I feel that all the other load measures also have their yeah. uh, disadvantages. Yeah. And, and maybe they are, they are more backed by science. Yeah. But if you look close to them, yeah. they are also have their limitations. They also have their limitations. You know, there's the other side of Siler, which you'll see a Training Peaks article written by some random coach that'll just be like, TSS is the best, and here's the reason. And you're like, what? Yeah. No. No, it's no. not that either. No. no. It's not that either. You, you you have these, it's somewhere in the middle. It's it's not perfect. It's not great. It has some strengths, and other things have other strengths. And the best thing is to figure out what is the best. Yeah. And honestly, I, Dejo and I talked a lot about training load. And I just look at it I'm like, man, it is so ripe for the picking for someone to come on and do something better. But the path dependency of PMC in that, like, how hard is it to come up with a training load that is, has an, that's exponentially weighted and based off of heart rate? Yeah. How hard is it? How hard is it? We, Right. Yeah, we are talking a little bit now with Dio and I still have a PhD student and we're talking a little bit about it. But then if you come up with something new, you have to validate it and validate it in a good way and not mm. validate it how the other load measures are validated. Like a cult? Because they are not validated for cycling. <laughs> Only the study of which Dio did that kind of validated the load measures. Mm-hmm. A bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So, but it's still, it's pretty difficult. Or not difficult, but like it's... Still, you have the feeling that you're gonna you're making up something. Yeah. I'm jumping in here to ask you to check out our last show. If you haven't, we chatted to Dr. Elisabetta Borgia, sports psychologist for Trek Segafredo men and women's teams and coordinator of mental support for the Italian Cycling Federation. In this episode, we discussed the importance of a cyclist emotions when pursuing peak performance in the sport. And the full-time sports psychologist role is one of the newer additions to the pro cycling team performance staff roster, so we were very excited to hear about her role and experiences working with these athletes. We also take a look at the details of how a specific type of therapy emerging in this space, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, can apply to performance of athletes of all levels. This episode is up now where you've got this one. I have two studies here to discuss around training load that you've done. One is the relationship between various training load measures in elite cyclists during training, road races, and time trials. And then the other one is the influence of exercise intensity on the association between kilojoules spent and various training loads in professional cycling. So that first one you did with Carl Foster and Joss. Second one as well. The first, the first one is pretty easy, um, I think, because I took the four load measures, kilojoule, session RP, Lucia, Strimp, and TSS, and then in, selected all the files of training, races, and time trials for 21 individual riders, and then I looked at all the correlations. Did you catch that? Tune fires off those measures from the first study pretty quickly, so if you missed it, here they are again. The study investigated the relationship between mechanical energy spent in kilojoules, session rating of perceived exertion, Lucia training impulse, LUTRIMP, and training stress score, TSS, in training, races, and time trials. Most of these are fairly common, and the one that you might not have heard of is Lucia's TRIMP. It's TRIMP being short for training impulse and Lucius TRIMP is one of the variations of TRIMP. It's a measure of internal load that uses a summated score based on the duration spent in each of the three heart rate zones. This is low, moderate and high and arbitrarily weighted for the intensity of the heart rate zone as one, two or three respectively. And overall, how did these measures correlate with training and racing? 
And they all correlate really well in training with each other. So it means you're kind of measuring the same. And then in races, you see that the correlations are weaker with the internal load measures, such as session RP and Lucia Strimp. And it's probably because of fatigue and uh, you can't control hydration that well. You can't control, like if it's really warm in training, you can go in the morning, but in races, you can't do that kind of thing. So that's why you get a little bit more variation and why it's also with Dai, who also wrote in one of his papers, it could be useful to uh, combine the two load measures and look at how they relate in races. And then the most interesting one is that you saw with TSS and, for example, load measures that the relationship, the slope of the uh, relationship was different in training compared to races, which I kind of already knew when I wrote it down uh, because I was trying to use the combination with session RP and TSS as a, yeah, a fatigue fitness tool in cycling in 2012 or 13. The idea was TSS will stay the same and then session RP will, will be higher when the rider is more fatigued. So you do two rides of 100 TSS, one you're fatigued, you will give it, or one you're fresh, you will give it a 12. And one you will be fatigued, you will give it a 15 because you're more tired. And then that uh, relation between the two will tell me if a rider is really good shape and really, really fatigued. But then I saw in races, the relationship is always uh, lower. So they will get more TSS for the same amount of session RP. And then I dove more into TSS and wrote the second paper, which shows that because the intensity factor is squared in TSS. So for the listeners who don't know, the TSS formula looks really nice, but it's basically intensity factor squared multiplied with the amount of hours. That's the same formula. So it means when you do a ride at 0.5, you multiply it with 0.5, it's 0.25 multiplied with the amount of hours multiplied with with 100. And then I noticed that this is the big discussion I always get, but the same amount of kilojoules with a low intensity or with a high intensity, you will collect like 50% more TSS points. But externally, you did the same. And that's what the second paper is about. Mm -hmm. So with all load measures, this relationship is is the same in training and races. Um, So if you burn 3,700 kilojoules, I use it as an example, you get to collect the same amount of session RP, the same amount of Lucia stream, but somehow you get 50% more TSS points. You know, I'm okay with the with the load measurement not lining up with kilojoules. In fact, I'd almost prefer it simply because not all kilojoules are created equally. They come from different bioenergetic systems and some of those bioenergetic systems are going to be more stressing. So as much as I would, you know, I'm not a huge TSS fanboy. When I see that, I'm actually a little bit more like, yeah, cool. I would gravitate towards that, but also say, I think there's a better way to do it. Yeah, for sure it's a better way, but still it's a bit strange because externally you did the same, kind of, right? The, also, your kilojoules will be higher where you do more intensity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a bit strange. And then, yeah, and then a normalized, I, I looked at it last month, and then a normalized power does something strange mm-hmm. with it. And for example, with TSS, what I did, you do one minute full gas and you put it in a in a yeah. one hour ride. You collect you get oh, a lot yeah. more points than when you put that so, same one minute in a five hour ride, yeah. which is like Yeah. What? Oh yeah, I did a two minute effort with somebody before one of my athletes in a one hour session and I was like, Is this right? I actually had that down yeah. as an anecdote. I had one of my athletes do a two minute effort and everything else was easy. I can't remember how much TSS he gained, but it was just insane. It's like what? Yeah, could could be maybe 20, 25 on a ride of fifty TSS. Yeah. You collect twenty five yeah. extra for two minutes. But how is um training peaks calculating the normal? Well, anything calculating the normalized power. So how is that number generated? So it's a if I'm correct out of my head, it's a moving average of thirty seconds. Then you square. I don't know how to say it in English, but you square it with mm-hmm. four. Yeah, the fourth fruit. Uh, then you take the mean of that number and then you do the opposite of square it by four. So it's pretty strange because the uh, strange 
if I remember correct from the things I did, takes out the lower intensity, but then when you do high intensity, makes it higher. I, I can't explain yeah. it well. So essentially, like what it's trying to do, whether it succeeds though, is uh, well, what everyone's always told me that it's trying to do is basically give you a value that correlates to what it should have been if you're riding at a steady power. So for example, if you're doing like a, a session that has heaps of accelerations and you're going up and down and up and down, like whatever the intensity is not steady at all and you might average 200 watts but your normalized power is 300, it's basically saying that this is equivalent to if you just rode out, went out and rode at 300 watts for this same amount of time. But yeah, but you didn't rode at three hundred watts. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's the thing. But this is what so, the, yeah. all of the training load stems from this normalized power, which is basically saying that these two are equivalent. Yeah, and you're right to say it's not that bad that the intensity with TSS you get a little bit more points with the high intensity. But I I also what I also did is just in a simple Excel sheet I calculated a lot of things, and for example I have it now in front mm. of me. So you're doing exactly the same amount of kilojoules. Remember that. So it's, I think it's 2000 in this calculation. And if you would write on an intensity factor of 0.2, which is really easy, for seven hours, you collect 28 TSS points. I, I, know, it's, I know it's really easy. But then where you do 2000 kilojoules at uh, 0.93, so it's almost an FTP, in one and a half hours, you burn that same amount of kilojoules. You collect 130 TSS. So it means if you ride on a on a yeah. on an intensity factor of 0.2, you have to ride for five almost 35. Is it 35 hours to collect the same amount of points as as riding one and a half hour on FTP, which like. If, if you could choose at least, okay, now you're going to ride 35 hours really easy or, or, or one and a half hour, like almost full gas. <laughs> so the, the, the risk is that it, in my opinion, the risk is that it can underestimate the low endurance rides for coaches because they think, ah, it's only 150 TSS. It's five hour ride if they do really easy. So that's a little bit the tricky part in it. This is what Luke Plapp said. He came on and he, he just discussed that he was seeing those numbers for his five-hour rides. And obviously someone like him with a crazy high FTP, if he's going out and his normalized power is such a small fraction of that FTP and then that fraction mm-hmm. is squared, he ends up with this tiny uh, TSS value. Then So, yeah, he's getting 120, 130 TSS for a five-hour ride. Uh, and then, yeah, that's that's tough as an athlete to see that when you think, well, I can get that same thing in a two-hour ride if I yeah. if I ride hard. But are those actually equivalent? This is where all of your research, I think, is is going is actually looking at whether they're the same thing. Yeah, the risk is that they start pushing to get that number for the coach or for their own mind. And yeah, so I'm not I'm not saying TSS is wrong. Just no delimitations. Yeah. Let's discuss the relationship here. Dejo brought this up when he was on the show. The relationship between intensity and TSS is a quadratic one. And so let's talk about that because we didn't really expand on it with Dejo. Um, but it's unusual. That's, I think that's a little bit what I said um, when I point out the differences. So if you write on 0.93 in this mm-hmm. example then because it's squared, you end up with 0.86 multiplied with the amount of hours, multiplied with 100, which gives you the score. So the difference between 0.93 and 0.86 is almost nothing because it's squared. Because if you square one, you get one. But then if you square half, you get 0.25. So it's 50% lower. That's this quadratic relationship which makes it a bit strange with TSS so you collect if you do really short ride with five one minute efforts or something you got collected really a lot of points of TSS well if you do a really easy ride on 150 watts for these guys for five six hours they only collect maybe 150 points like Luke was yeah 
the, the weird thing is, is that, as you pointed out in your paper, is that there's nothing physiological that's a quadratic. Yeah. Yep. And that's, yeah. So it should be exponential. When I'm thinking about a training load measure, it sh- should be maybe exponential with the same as the eye trim, which was also really mm-hmm. good at, in, uh, in Dyer's mm-hmm. study. Where you say riding at 200 on, one, on 150 watts, 200 watts, 250 watts for the pro athlete is kind of the same. The difference is not that, that substantial. But then when you do 300 watts, it's slightly higher. When you do 400, like you make it exponential. So riding one minute on 600 watts should give you, because it's, it, it is really hard for the body. It should give you a lot of points. But the difference between 200 and 250 watts shouldn't be that big. And also, not just that it's a quadratic, but it's a quadratic which is centered around FTP, which also doesn't have any physiological backing. So you've got something that doesn't have any ground in physiology, and then you're also then just adding in a quadratic on top of that. So just small margins of error then can just blow into massive discrepancies if you don't have the FTP set correctly. And also, yeah, as we've discussed a lot on this podcast, the problems with FTP before you even get to this measure of training load. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. But I, I feel that we're doing now more uh, like the indoors tests, and it is pretty difficult in pro cycling to get the zones correct. Mm-hmm. To be honest, like we're doing the the test with the metabolic test with lactate, like everything, like what you would do in a normal lab, and then you see. Some riders are not used on riding indoors. So then you get really low value. Like Dio had a paper two weeks ago, which says like yeah. indoors mm-hmm. and outdoors is different. But if you go outdoors, mm-hmm. you can control uh, the weather. You can, there's other things you can control. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it is pretty difficult to get it correct. Or you see profiles, which you, you would never see in amateurs. Yeah, like yeah. You, you see lactate profiles that that they don't they they go full gas and you measure lactate and it's not it even five. Get back to that conversation we had with Nick, uh, his research paper on the blood lactate to put that into practice. You know, I hear Inigo San Milan, UAE Team Emirates coach, and then you hear him saying things like, "Oh, we do lactate testing with today Pagacho. Him and you know he rides at that threshold one a lot and you're you're like man by the time you go through all of the air that's in that and then assume that and all how accurate that how inaccurate that test is and then how that changes over time you're you're telling me that you have that accurate enough where that is actually stimulating him to somehow it's different from anybody else please (laughs) I think in this case, it's the same as with the load measures. If you work as a scientist, it's easy to like to control everything. And, you know, and then you, and you know, you see the guys in the field doing things and you're like, Fuck, why, are, why are they doing these stupid or wrong things? And, but I think it's the same as with the training load. If you work in the field, you have to choose something. This is how we're going to do it. Know the limitations and work with it as, as, as good as possible with, with that limitation in your background. But if we start doubting everything where you work as a sports scientist in the field, mm. you can better stop working because as a scientist, you learn to be critical and you can criticize everything and then you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Well, well, you have people working in the field like a physiotherapist, which, which makes them, su- they are super important in every top spot. And they also do stuff they don't know about, but they, they, they don't look that critical to themselves. And, you know, and so we as spot scientists have to realize as as we keep criticizing ourselves in the field, we will never be that we will never become that important because everybody's looking at us. Yeah, but you guys don't know anything for sure. So it's it's up to us to uh, to to know those limitations, try to bring that limitations to the people we work with, but in a in a good way, and don't be be limited by what like by the research or by the research in the sense like yeah yeah we have we have to move forward and not yeah keep stuck in those limitations 
the rest of the kind of retrospective studies here, I did want to use these studies as kind of a teaching moment and just kind of dig a little bit deeper on your methods so that the listeners can become a little bit more critical of the um, retrospective studies and what to kind of look out for. So for example, yeah. with TSS, right? Uh, if you are uh, a coach and you're a practitioner, you're hopefully testing your athletes regularly and you're getting their, maybe you're using their 20 minute power and calculating out FTP. And then that means that you're adjusting that over time. And that means that the TSS is probably a lot more accurate. However, in retrospective study, that's not possible. So how did you do that? So, yeah, so we did, we, um, so how I did it was, I took the best 20 minutes of that mm -hmm. season, which we did 20 minutes testing in January and sometimes in July. And in general, 80 to 90% is still the FTP from that test. I could have chosen to take uh, the best 20 minutes of uh, one month or two months, but the risk is that they never do that 20 minutes effort in racing yeah, and training. Yeah. Um, so I, I just took the best 20 minutes, took 95% out from that, and I said, that's the FTP, which also the 95% yeah. is not true. Just um, the limitations of the study though, right? You got to do something, right? Yeah, yeah. And and of course, the best would be to do, ah, the best would be to determine your FTP yeah. every day yeah. and then calculate the TSS then, every then, day. Yeah, and, then, that's impossible. and then you no longer have a professional cyclist because you've, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, yeah, and so what I, and with Lucia Strimp and Edward Strimp I used, we took the maximum mm -hmm. heart rate and then set based on Siler. Um, I don't know the percentage out of my head, but uh, okay, 70% uh, of the max heart rate below that yeah. is zone one. Between 70 and 80 is zone two. Above 80 is zone three. So that's even more it's tricky. super problematic. Than what we did with TSS, yeah. to be honest. So maximal... Yeah. Maximal anchors yeah. are to determine zones are super problematic in themselves. But again, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. what are you going to do? We need to, we want to know what's going on here. And the best thing to do is just make sure you read through the methods and kind of have a think about what the limitations could be. Yeah. So just while it's on my mind and I've already had it written down, what, how many training zones do you use to when you're working with athletes now? Or in yeah, when you're prescribing training. Web, I always, I use the, the Hunter and Coggin zones from Training Peaks, but then I combined the last, yep. I, I used five. So uh, I combined, I think they have seven, right? So I combined five, six, and seven together. Yeah. And the reason for it is because they, they write 0.01% in seven, and then I have to make a bar graph, and then yeah. there's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> uh so that's yep. that's the reason it, uh, and then were you determining these uh based off ftp then when you were setting yeah. this yep. yeah I, we did ftp and then just used the uh, the percentage from also from from the book from training yeah, yeah from uh yep. from training piece and there's yep. a lot of the uh, yeah you can discuss this a lot but at the end we won a lot of races yeah. so at the end of the day, I win more than you do, so <laughs> my science is better. <laughs> ah, no, it's it's. I think it's yeah. In this case as well, you have to know the limit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's not a dig yeah. on your research at all, right? It's it's just it's just to say that like we can't expect these things to be perfect. If you want to know anything about this, we're going to have to use some methods that aren't perfect. And yeah, 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 yeah. And I also, it's good for people to hear that, that, um, like, because it can be worrying as a coach if you've listened to some of the times that we've talked about all these things that are wrong with all of these different training models or, um, yeah, ways, ways to determine thresholds and this kind of stuff. You can start to think, oh, damn, there's nothing I can do that's right. But it's sort of good to hear that even at the top level of the sport, people use something that they know isn't the best thing out there necessarily or or the best thing possible, but it's still really useful. It's still something that you can use to get results out of athletes to measure what they're doing to prescribe training. So yeah. it might not be the best thing, but it can still be used yeah. effectively. Yeah. It, yeah. And actually gets into a little bit of an interesting conversation about what the coach can do in this situation in terms of measuring maybe training load over the course of a season, 
right? And doing a lot of the analyses that you're doing, they're actually going to be able to get a better analysis just because they're doing, because they can do regular testing and that type of thing. They're not limited by that. Um, I've actually seen it where people have based their analyses off of the methods that were in retrospective studies. And I'm like, no, you can actually do it better than what they did it in the retrospective study because they're limited by the data set. For example, yeah. it's kind of it gets into an epistemological chicken and the egg kind of conversation of, okay, say you want to do a training intensity distribution analysis. Well, if you're working with an athlete, you can do it really well because you could potentially find a really good way to determine LT1 and you could get the best critical power model and have that set up and have and be following that throughout the year and have that analysis just nailed. Um, and then you go to the literature and you figure out, and you're like, wow, nobody did it as good as I did. So, <laughs> so uh, one thing I'm thinking about this is uh, just down the road, whenever I get to it, is maybe if you are in WKO5, you have a dashboard that's set up with all of the different retrospective analyses for training intensity distributions. And you're like, well, this is from Siler at all this year. And if I want to ch- compare my athlete with this cohort, then I'm doing the same analysis that they did for that. Yeah, so that you would have be. like all these different, and instead of just having one training intensity distribution, if you kind of wanted to compare it to one of the, your athlete, what your athlete is doing to one of these other studies, then you could just have a whole dashboard set up with all these different training intensity distribution analyses from the different retrospective studies. Yeah, I want to say that I think people also underestimate how difficult it is to do regular testing mm-hmm. with pro athletes compared to with amateurs. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we we were really keen on testing our riders with, with one of the coaches like every two, three months, mm-hmm. but it's impossible uh-huh. with the planning and the racing and the changes. and So, yeah, it's really difficult. And I want to say if you want to do a performance test or zone testing in endurance cycling, should, should it be fresh after 30 minutes or should it be, you know, longer, at least for performances? I think you should also look when they are fatigued and how they perform then. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, yeah, discussions mm-hmm. how you can do it. Yeah, I lean towards fresh because it takes the noise out of it. So. Yeah, if you want to determine zones, probably it's the best. But if you want to determine if your rider improved, I'm now pointing more towards mm-hmm. fatigue. Because we saw my PhD student did one study where they trained for three months and we did a test, test fresh and test fatigue. And then the riders improved a lot on on the fatigue test and not so much on the fresh yeah. test. That's, that's so. one of the things I think about as well is um, it doesn't seem like at some point a critical power model probably isn't as sensitive as you want it to be. And then an athlete who is really into the testing aspect of it. And you're like, man, my, my critical power, my, or my FTP hasn't gone up in three or four months and I'm doing all this training, what's going on. And I'm like, well, there's other things that are measurable or maybe not so measurable. Um, it's like, how, how are you feeling, you know, at the end of a three-hour ride right now or at the end of a three-hour three race? Like, you, that could be completely different between two different scenarios with similar thresholds, I think, potentially. Yeah, so, that, that, so that's what I mean. Yeah, so the athlete thinks he didn't improve, but he improved really a lot, but after three hours of racing. So it's a risk. Mm-hmm. Ah. It's also a limitation of testing fresh in an endurance sport. And so it continues. Another area, another limitation to recognize. And this really feeds my biggest takeaway from this chat with Toon. It's precisely as Toon said. We have to move forward and not stay stuck in these limitations, which translates to my world as know your shit. Like, Really know your shit. Understand the limitations of what you use. Take the information from people like Toon and his research to know where the limitations of your measures are. And yes, this is exactly what we do on the show, but don't just stop here. 
I said at the start that we're on a search for the truth in cycling performance, and that statement may come off as a bit presumptuous or even cringe. So if you want to say it another way, we are actively looking for limitations of the performance measures and tools we use because the reality is sometimes the truth is like training load measures or threshold markers. They are imperfect measures. But if we know them well enough to understand where they start to fall apart and can explain the limitations to others and in practice catch the moments where they fail to be reliable or accurate, we can use what we have right now to make the best decisions possible to get the best outcomes possible. Dr. Toon Earp is a performance scientist with Ineos Grenadiers. Toon, thank you for joining us and sharing your research and thoughts from working in the trenches. But we're not done with you yet, Toon. In the next episode, part two of this interview, where we get into how professional cyclists train and then what are the demands during races. And it's a fascinating look into both men's and women's professional cycling demands. While you wait for that one, check out our last show where we chatted to Dr. Elisabetta Borgia, sports psychologist for Trek Segafredo men and women's teams, and she's also the coordinator of mental support for the Italian Cycling Federation. We discussed the importance of a cyclist's emotions when pursuing peak performance in the sport. We also take a look at the details of a specific type of therapy, emerging in this space, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, and how it can apply to the performance of athletes at all levels. It's up now where you got this one. And I just want to ask you, if you learned something new from this podcast, please share it and subscribe to it or follow it in whatever app you use to listen to the show. Go ahead. You can find that button in the app. It's probably a heart or it says follow or subscribe. It's in there somewhere. Go ahead, click it right now while you're listening. And with that... Thanks for listening.